Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Called to confession this morning is from Colossians 4, verse 2. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. If you have not made your New Year's resolution yet, here's a good one. Pray more. If making resolutions for the New Year isn't your thing, then here's a model to live by. Continue earnestly in prayer. Think for a moment about how large a portion of Scripture is occupied with the subject of prayer either in providing examples, enforcing the precepts of prayer, or declaring the promise of blessing to those who regularly seek God in prayer. The account of the history of mankind after the fall begins with, then man began to call upon the name of the Lord. And the canon of scripture closes with the earnest prayer of the Apostle John, even so, come, Lord Jesus. In between are numerous examples, Jacob wrestling with God, Daniel who prayed three times a day, and David, who wholeheartedly called upon God. In the Gospels, we encounter Jesus' teachings on prayer and his example of regularly seeking solitude for dialogue with the Father. In Acts, we read of the apostles' frequent prayers for guidance and deliverance, and the epistles are filled with commands for prayer. God has made prayer a prominent fixture in his word, and therefore we can be certain he intends for it to be prominent in our lives. He has said much about prayer because he knows how great a need we have for it. So great is our need that we are told to continue earnestly in it until our life on this earth is ended. And yet how little time we actually devote to prayer. Too often for us, praying becomes an afterthought in our day. It takes a back seat to all the other priorities of the day. This happens because we fail to recognize our impoverished state and our vital need for communion with our Creator. Charles Spurgeon said this about prayer. A prayerless soul is a Christless soul. Prayer is the lisping of the believing infant, the shout of the fighting believer, the requiem of the dying saint fallen asleep in Jesus. It is the breath, the watchword, the comfort, the strength, the honor of a Christian. If thou be a child of God, thou wilt seek thy Father's face and live in thy Father's love. Dear saints, let us be a people of prayer. Let us always be seeking the Father's face. There is never a time when he does not hear. And until we are present with him in heaven, there will be never a time when we have prayed enough. Let us continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. God's word has reminded us of our need for prayer and our need for confession. If you're willing and able, please kneel with me as we confess our sins to God. Dear Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you have called us into your presence so that we may worship you. And Lord, we pray that we may worship you by hearing your word proclaimed to us and that we would see in it your glory and your majesty, your plan. And Lord, how you are working all things together for good for those who love you or are called according to your purposes. And Lord, you indeed uh, help us to have eyes to, to see your word, to hear it, 
ears to hear, hearts to obey, lips to utter forth the praises that are so deserve that you are so deserving of. And Lord, we just praise you for your goodness and mercy to us. Give us your peace through Jesus Christ, your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. So the media, um, the media is adept at creating controversy in our day in order to get a good story. In fact, the media has been doing that for a long time. If you go back and look at newspapers, going back into the history of America, it's been going on for a long time, right? And so uh, if, you, if you pay attention to what they're doing, what they do is get two opposite polar, polar opposite sides, two opposing sides, and, and they bring them together, they instigate them, and get people arguing and disagreeing and taking sides because that makes a good story, right? And uh, so you can kind of take one side or the other side. It's all com- com- competition and it's competitive, and you see all of those things going and, and uh, all of that. They're stirring up people and emotions, and that's their method to get attention, really for their own networks, um, their own newspaper, um, and all of that their own talk show, whatever it might be. And we've seen this just recently with all the political fiascos over the past year between all the different presidential candidates and uh, for, the, for the election and, and then kind of narrowing it down to where you had just Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and then they would bring supporters in and create this controversy and try and get them to interact with each other and you have this conflict, right? Controversy. Conflict. They're pros at it. This is what they do for a living, is to, to make this, uh, these, these things come together so that they can have this good story that, people, that interests people and all of that. Well, in the scripture for today, we see a similar thing actually coming. And, and not just this scripture, but what is happening as you come out of the Sermon on the Mount is this type of thing going on. Controversy. Okay? Controversy. And, and God is really producing this controversy, okay? Um, so this controversy is coming, and it's different than what the media does. It's not contrived the way the, the media hosts do it, but God's orchestrating these things to show his power, his might, who the Christ is, and all of these things. And so we have a controversy here, but it's a true conflict that draws lines between real truth, not just contrived truth, but real truth and real error. The controversy between Jesus and the world. And so that's what's happening as you come out of the Sermon on the Mount. Which, you know, when we're talking about the world, oddly enough, as you look through, you know, chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 in, in uh the book of Matthew, the, the controversy is between, you know, and the, the people that are the world are actually the ones that would say that they're aligned closest to God, which is interesting, right? The ones that would say that they align closest with God. The Pharisees, the scribes, and to a lesser degree, the Sadducees, those who, those who would say that they're following the law of God. And so they have this conflict with Jesus, God's son, all right? The conflict begins to erupt as Jesus continues his ministry. And as you read through Matthew, there's little controversy at first, but as time and the chapters go on, you can see the building tension where it all of a sudden crescendos at the cross. 
You see, unrepentant man fights against Christ Jesus. Unrepentant man fights against Christ Jesus. Despite seeing his glory, I mean, they had every opportunity to see the workings of Christ before them. Many of them witnessed these things. Despite seeing his glory, despite seeing his miracles, despite hearing his teaching, unredeemed man conflicts with and reacts against the truth of Christ Jesus. And it's because he is called to submit to Christ and his authority. There is one great conflict that exists, and it is to fight against Jesus, to despise right and truth, to desire the death of Christ, or to repent, to live for Christ, to be redeemed by him, to submit to his will, and that only comes really through the cleansing of Jesus Christ himself. And the application of that through the Holy Spirit as he awakens us. Okay? So, let's take a look at the context of the passage. How does this, these four verses fit into the scriptures here in the Gospel of Matthew and really in the life of Christ? Well, early in the ministry of Jesus, he began to go through the countryside. He was first tempted in the wilderness, Right? And there's great ties to that and the children of, the world, you know, children of Israel being in the wilderness and, and uh, the, the Garden of Eden, the temptation. Christ is the second Adam now. And so he goes through that temptation. He fulfills all of those things and he doesn't fall, unlike the first Adam. And so then Jesus goes off into the countryside and he's going through the countryside healing sick people and calling people to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he goes up onto the mountainside and he preaches the incredibly powerful sermon that we have in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And it's it's an amazing, powerful sermon. And in this sermon, we find out in 729, right at the end, right before chapter 8, that Jesus preached with authority and not as the scribes. Okay, so there's a difference between Jesus and his preaching and his teaching and what the scribes were teaching. You know, the Pharisees, what they were teaching and how they taught. Okay, this is immediately preceding the scripture for today. And so that plays into really what's being said here in chapter 8. You see, Jesus taught with authority. He didn't teach like the scribes who would quote at length from rabbis and prophets and and quote, you know, at length from the scriptures and the, the exposition of those scriptures through the experts in the law. You know, he, he wasn't about doing those things. He wasn't quoting from men. Instead, as you see Jesus in the sermon, he teaches in a way that adds to, that, that brings about weight to the law of God, to the, the word of God. And so he says things like, you have heard it said, but I tell you. Okay? You have heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you, even if you're angry with your brother, you've already committed murder in your heart. You see, Jesus isn't teaching, you know, well, the rabbis say this. about He's teaching with authority. He's saying, you have heard God's word say this, and I'm telling you it goes further than that. It goes into your very being. You see, Jesus is teaching with authority like that. Okay? He's teaching with authority. He doesn't quote from all these other people like the rabbis did. And so as Jesus teaches the glorious things he does in the Sermon on the Mount, now we see that authoritative teaching beginning in chapter 8 to be confirmed. Okay, We see that being confirmed in chapter 8. 
that the authority that he preached with is backed by the power of being able to do amazing things, to do miracles, to have these powerful accounts of miracles affirming what he has just taught. So it wasn't just this teaching, but it was backed up by his actions now. Okay? And so we see the cleansing of the leper. We see Jesus healing a centurion's uh, servant. We see Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law, who is sick, so that she might serve them. And then many uh, people who are demon-possessed um, and, and sick coming to Jesus, and he's healing them as well. And so that's what we see in chapter 8. And a key passage in, ver- in, in chapter 8 is verse 17, which says, That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And he's quoting from Isaiah 53. You see, Jesus was fulfilling the scriptures of the Old Testament, and that was demonstrating his authority. That he had authority even over demon possession and sicknesses and all of those things. So he has authority over these things, and these are confirming that authority. He has the power, in other words, to back up what he says, to back up what he teaches. But what this begins is that slowly rising controversy between the world and Jesus, the Messiah, and the King. You know, nobody gets too riled up about someone's teaching, typically. You know, you can kind of dismiss somebody's teaching, right? You can say, well, yeah, I okay, whatever, right? But here's, here's where the problem lies. When that teaching is backed up by action, then things start uh, producing controversy. People don't like that. When teaching begins to affect change in other people, right? When teaching begins to go broader and affect, in fact, affect what people are doing, okay? And as that begins to happen and people's lives get changed and all of those things, then those who are in charge, those who may not like that teaching, begin to get nervous. And especially when that teacher begins to confront them as well. When that teacher begins to confront them and say, you, you need to repent. Okay? That's when the rulers uh, begin to get angry. And that's what happens with Jesus. That happens all the time. It's what happens with Jesus here. The Pharisees begin to question Jesus and make some assertions about him in chapter 9. And then by chapter 12, the Pharisees and the scribes are openly confronting him, and he is rebuking them. Okay, He's rebuking them so much so that he's actually calling them um, a wicked and perverse generation. All right? And again, it's by those who say that they're closest to God that he's doing that. But you see, even though they were saying that they were walking and following and and going by and living all of their life according to the law of God, they weren't. They weren't humbled. They weren't humbled by the word of God. They were proud of those facts. They weren't serving God and, and neighbor. They weren't caring for the widows and orphans. And you see that in Jesus' ministry. They weren't caring for the weak of society, the needy, the sick, the hungry, right? They, they gave out of their wealth, okay? They, they weren't giving sacrificially. They gave out of their wealth, all right? Not like the widow who gave out of her poverty 
and she's giving the, this little mite all she has. You know, they were making a show of it, and they were going in and letting everybody see them give their money out of their, out of their richness. And they were proud of those things. And you have the Pharisee who's standing there saying, I thank God that I'm not like these other people. I thank God I'm not like that tax collector over there and he's praying in a prominent place. Right? And then the tax collector is saying, Oh, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Right? See, there's a difference. There's pride. God resists the proud. God resists the proud, and that's where the Pharisees and the scribes were. Most of them, not all of them. We see, we see some who humble themselves and come to Christ. But for most part, they're proud. And God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And that's exactly what we see happening here. It isn't typically the rich and the proud that are coming to Jesus when we see him in his ministry, but the repentant, the humble, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sick, the needy, the infirm, the women. Okay, the women. You see women following Jesus all the time. You see the Gentiles we have here in chapter 8, the centurion. He's coming to Jesus and he's saying, you have authority. You can just speak the word and my servant will be healed. I understand that. He has fishermen coming to him, shepherds, the outcasts from society. Okay? And that's what we see in the scripture today. Those are the people that are coming to Christ because they see his authority. They see his power. They see the ability to affect change in their lives. They're humble. Okay? And that's what we see here in the text for today. Here in these four verses, we find Jesus coming down from the mountain and, and being approached by one of the cultural untouchables, a leper. He's, he's an untouchable, okay? There was something, though, that drew this man to Jesus. Perhaps he'd heard that Jesus had healed many in the region of Galilee in northern Palestine. Maybe the word had spread and said, this man, he's got the power, the authority to be able to heal and he thought, maybe he can heal me. Perhaps he stood at a distance and had heard Jesus preaching a sermon on the mount. And now he wants to approach him. He sees that he's not like the scribes and the Pharisees. He sees that he has authority. He saw a difference here from anyone else that was in Judea at the time. Whatever it was, this leper approached Jesus and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Okay? Now, let's understand the horror of leprosy in Jesus' day. It was a disease or a series of diseases. There might be different kinds of diseases. But it was, there were skin ailments, physical ailments that were, were, for the most part were incurable. Once you had leprosy, you never got rid of it. You had it. It's just the way it was. It was incurable. And the people that contracted these diseases were banished from society. They were total outcasts from society. They were untouchables, as, as you might call in India. They, they were impoverished in their lives. All normal human contact was at an end. And in order to survive, they developed colonies of infected people, and there were lots of them. They would gather together, and they would be together in these colonies that would live on the outskirts of town 
living off scraps that would be given to them and, and things like that. So when you moved, when you were one of these lepers and you moved anywhere in society, it was mandated that you alert everybody that you're coming by shouting out, unclean, unclean. And then everybody would move away from you in horror because they didn't want to get touched by you. Because at the very least, if you touched them, if you came into contact with an untouchable, with one of these lepers, you would be ceremonially unclean. And at worst, you might develop the disease yourself. And nobody wanted that. And so you had to shout out, unclean! And the people would scurry away from you in horror, frightened of you. There were no cures. In this culture, to heal or cure a leper was seen as, as difficult and as impossible as raising the dead. That's how incurable this was. This is a dead person. A walking dead person. But something compelled this man to come to Jesus. Perhaps the crowds that were following Jesus parted because this man walked through the crowd saying, unclean, unclean, and he could have access to Jesus because the crowd didn't want to have anything to do with him. And so he walks through this crowd up to Jesus and he falls down on his knees before him. And he bowed before him and says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You see, he was recognizing that Jesus had the power to make him clean and whole again. You see, he didn't say to Jesus, if you are able, make me clean, did he? See, this is key. If you are able, make me clean. He didn't say that. He said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. That's a difference. Somehow, like through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in this man's life, this leper knew that Jesus could, had the ability, had the power, the authority to make him clean again. Because he recognized that Jesus had authority and power unlike anybody else in Judea. Jesus could heal him of this devastating disease. Jesus could raise him from the dead. And what does Jesus do? Does Jesus run away in terror? Eh? No. Then Jesus, we see in verse 3, then Jesus put out his hand and he touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Jesus touched the untouchable. Jesus put out his hand and touched the untouchable. Just touching this man would make anyone ceremonially unclean at the least and again perhaps disease infested. And Jesus reaches out his hand and he touches this man who perhaps hadn't felt a human touch, a normal human touch in decades You see, Jesus could have spoken a word and healed this man. Jesus could just have spoken the word and healed this man. He didn't have to touch him. He does that on a number of occasions. He does that in the next account we have here with the centurion servant. Because the centurion says, I'm not worthy to have you into my home. Just speak the word. I know you have the authority. I'm a man under authority. I understand authority. And I know you have authority, Jesus. And all you need to do is speak the word, 
And my servant will be healed like that. And Jesus says, man, this guy's got faith. It is as you say. In that very hour, his servant is healed. He could speak, could have spoke to this leper and said, you are healed. But here, Jesus touches this man. He touches the untouchable. And by doing so, the thing is, Jesus is ineffective. Jesus is unaffected by this diseased man. The disease doesn't infect Jesus. It doesn't make him ceremonially unclean. Jesus affects this man with his power and his holiness to make him whole and bring back life to him and healing and cleansing. The disease doesn't come on to Jesus. Jesus gives him life. The man is affected by Jesus. When we see this, it's part of the fulfillment that we have in Isaiah 61 where it says, the spirit, of the, Lord of God, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus is fulfilling that. Jesus, when he started his ministry, that's the first thing that he spoke in, in the book of Luke in the synagogue. And he says, this is fulfilled before you this day. This is being fulfilled. The the Spirit of the Lord God is upon Jesus. The Lord has anointed him to preach good tidings to the poor. Here is a poor leper. And Jesus is preaching good tidings to him. I am willing. Be cleansed. He has sent Jesus to heal up the broken hearted. This man is a broken hearted man. And Jesus heals him up. He proclaims liberty to the captive who is captivated, who is captured by this disease. He's imprisoned, and Jesus preaches to him. He proclaims liberty to him and opens up the prison to which they're bound. Jesus is fulfilling these scriptures right before these people's eyes. Jesus affects change in this world and brings wholeness to those whom he touches. And in one sense, right, we're all the leper. We are the leper. We have the leprosy of sin that is death upon us. Right? We are out of fellowship with God. And we are out of fellowship with his church. We infect with sin and by our sin those who are around us. Right? All those who we come into contact with. What we all need is the healing power of Jesus' touch. His covering over us. That's the only hope of life that we have. That's it. Jesus takes on our sins. He bears our burdens and our sorrows and our griefs and our iniquities, our sins. He bears them himself. But in the end, because he's the great physician, he's the great healer, he's God incarnate, these have no lasting effect upon him. They don't besmirch him. He covers us. He covers us and touches us and heals us with his righteousness, and we are cleansed from all our foulness forever by his touch. Now, notice the difference between this leper and the Pharisee. This leper comes to Jesus in humility. 
He's coming bowing down before Jesus in humility. I know you have the power to cleanse me. All that is needed is your will. And if you are willing, please cleanse me. But I'm not, he's not demanding anything. He's not demanding his rights. He has no rights. But a simple, humble request that recognizes the power and authority of Jesus. That's humility. But when we look at chapter 12, verse 38, we see the scribes and the Pharisees in that controversial setting saying and demanding of Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. We want to see a sign from you. Right here, right? All along, he's doing these signs. There's Pharisees around doing that. They want him to do it at their command. We want you to do something amazing before our eyes. Show us. Perform for us. Do a parlor trick so we can determine your worth, Jesus. So we can approve of you if we so determine. Do a parlor trick before our eyes. At our command, we want to see what you can do. Whether you are worthy of us to think highly of you. You know, God resists the proud. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And Jesus rebukes these Pharisees again, as I said before. And he calls them. He says, you're a wicked and perverse generation that demand a sign. But look at the grace that he gives to this humble leper. He says, I am willing to be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. Immediately. It's gone. That's the power Jesus has. That's the authority that he has in himself to reach out and heal of such a dreadful disease. Horrific disease. And the church has historically seen passages like these and in following our, our teacher, the Lord Jesus Christ, has likewise reached out to outcasts and the hurting and the sick. Throughout history, when plagues would come upon a, a city, I mean, going all the way back into the into the Roman times, when a plague would come into a city, the unbelieving, fearful pagans would flee away from the disease. They'd flee away from the leper, right? They'd flee away from the disease, but Christians would go in and help the sick and the needy, the physically, the physically uh, challenged people that were being compromised by this disease, and they would bring spiritual life to many of these people. By helping them, teaching them, touching them, and dealing with them. They weren't afraid. They weren't afraid. Indeed, that was the beginning of the hospital movement and for finding cures to diseases was Christians going out and interacting with those who were sick when the pagans were fleeing. And in one sense, this is what you are called to, Robert. I'm going to tie this into you. So... You're part of the mercy ministry of this church. You know, to go out and, and uh, to be able to use your gifts and talents and, and how God has called you to serve. You know, that's what the diaconate is, is service. And so you are to care for the physical needs of those in the congregation, the physical needs of those who might be outside this congregation that you're reaching out to and, and bringing the gospel to bear in their lives. That comes from following Christ who is that servant-hearted man. And the same goes for today. When Christians have the ability to flee out of countries, like in the Middle East where terror strikes, 
and, and ISIS is going and, and they're beheading people and beheading Christians in, in particular. Many Christians who could flee those countries stay and continue to preach and share the gospel knowing their lives are on the line. Knowing that they may only have another year or two or three on this earth, but they're going to tell their people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. They could leave. They could be a refugee. They could get out of Dodge. They could get out of Syria and Iran and Iraq and get out of Afghanistan, but they stay. And people know that. It validates the power of the gospel. It validates the power of Christ Jesus because people know that. Muslims know that these people could leave, that they could flee, that they could get out of They want them to get out of there. They want to terrorize them so that they leave. And they stay. Because they're witnesses to the power of Christ to save. Even the downcast. And that's why Christianity is exploding in Iran and Iraq and Syria. Because Christ's own are staying and giving their own lives for the sake of the good news of the gospel to their people. Even if it means losing their life. That's what Christians do. Now, once this man is healed, Jesus then says some curious things to him in verse 4. And he says, Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And first of all, he tells the man not to tell anyone. That seems weird, doesn't it? Okay? Don't tell anybody about this. Why would this be? Well, Jesus probably doesn't want all the people coming out in mass to him and getting sidetracked by him being only a healer of diseases. Because Israel at the time was a mess. I mean, there's people that had, had diseases all over the place. Demon possession. You see it all the time here, right? Israel's a mess at this time. Okay? And so people could get sidetracked and see Jesus only as this healer of diseases. But also his time isn't quite ready yet. He had a lot still left to teach and do. And the people might try to force his hand by setting him up as king. The king who could provide bread for them and heal them of their sicknesses and all of these things. And they would forget about the mission, the great mission that he actually had to go to the cross and deal with man's greatest problem, sin. They would get distracted, and Jesus was trying to prevent that distraction from coming. Indeed, when you look at John 6.15, that's exactly what happened. That's right after Jesus feeds 5,000 people, and then you see this in John 6.15. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, he departed to the mountain by himself alone. See, they were going to forcibly make him the king. He can give us bread. It's the greatest socialist agenda out there. <laughs> right? And they're going to set him up as king. And he can make all of us well. He can heal all their diseases. You know, in the parallel account to Mark 145, this leper, we find the, the leper here actually doing what Jesus tells him not to do. And then he goes out and tells everybody. <laughs> Right? And so all these people come, and they're, they're coming to him, and it says that Jesus has to then 
um, withdraw himself into the wilderness. He has to withdraw himself into the wilderness, away from the crowds. Because there's so many people that, that are needed. Now, back to the text here. Jesus tells him then, go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. What Jesus is doing is affirming and fulfilling the law. He's affirming and fulfilling the law. In Leviticus 14, Moses had taught under inspiration of the Holy Spirit about what to do with leprosy and what to do when a healing occurred. And so Jesus submits to the law, and by that, he's fulfilling the law, just as he said on the Sermon on the Mount that he was doing. He wasn't coming to abrogate the law, get rid of the law. He was coming to fulfill it, and that's exactly what he's doing. And so in order to be restored to society, the former leper must go now and get a certificate of cleansing from the priest, to be inspected by the priest, to show that he is clean. And clean of all his leprosy, and be declared that, and then he could enter into society again. And then Jesus says, offer a thanksgiving offering to God. But notice why. Do you see it? As a testimony to them. As a testimony to them. As a witness to them of the power of Jesus. That he not only teaches with authority, but he acts with authority. He has authority, not just in his words, but also in his actions, and that proves his words. Jesus is able to give life to those, even those who are accounted as dead. That's the authority that he has. Be a testimony to them. And so the choice is really before the, the Pharisees, the, the scribes, the, the, the priests, when they see this leper come in. To submit to Jesus... To find out more about him. To listen to what he has to teach them. To understand who this man is. Who has come. Who has been sent by God. That's what they can do. Or they can become hardened in their pride. They can be humble. Or they can be proud. And that's the choice that's before all of us. And any time we see God's word expounded to us, are we going to abide by his word? Are we going to abide by the king's word that's given to us? Or are we going to say, you know, I really don't like that. I really don't like that. I'm going to go my own way. That, that's the choice that's before us. One is humble, right? God gives grace to the humble. And one is prideful. God resists the proud. Right? Christ was humble, wasn't he? He humbled himself. And he came to this earth. And he laid down his life for the people. His body was broken so that we might have life. And through his shed blood, we were covered in his righteousness. And our sins were taken away. As far as the east is from the west. Now, wouldn't we want to submit to that? Wouldn't we want to humble ourselves and say, thank you, Lord Jesus. I'm yours. Take me. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this word that you have given to us. Oh, Lord, we thank you for these scripture passages, these four simple verses. 
And Lord, the humility that they demonstrate to us. So Lord, we come before you. We confess our sins. We confess wanting to go our own way. Do our own thing. But Lord, send your spirit to us. Convict us. Show us where we need to repent. Give us hearts that are humble toward you. Strengthen us through the work of your spirit in our lives to be walking in grace, the grace and mercy that you have given to us. Lord, we lift you up and give you thanks and praise for the hope that you give to us through your son, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. familiar verses this time of year, Luke 2, verse 7, and then verse 12. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn, in verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Last week, Pastor Winant spoke from these uh, verses, and he spoke on the topic of Christ's birth there. He spoke to the shame and the suffering and the disgrace, at least from a human perspective, related to such a lowly birth. One, one aspect he pointed out was that the shame and suffering associated with this, of, be, of having an infant born and placed directly into an animal feeding trough, a manger. While I haven't fully examined all the connections, I believe there's some connections here, some parallels, some foreshadowings connected to the fact that the Christ child was laid in a manger that was used for feeding livestock in our participation here in the Lord's Supper. First, simply the meaning of the words. The word manger means to eat. Food provides our sustenance for living. Through the faith granted to us, Christ, because of his sacrifice on the cross and the resurrection from this, from this death, secured and now sustains our eternal life as well. Even artists throughout history have captured this connection as they represent our Savior's birth with animals running their muzzles into the manger as if to eat from it. And even in some pictures you see the Christ child's hand lifted to the, child, or to the animal as if to feed, uh, to offer it food. The manger itself has been depicted in their art as being something similar to a bread basket. It's even sometimes raised as a structure somewhat comparable to an altar. And the final connection I'll make between the Lord's Supper and the birth of Christ is the name of Bethlehem. The city's name in Hebrew means house of bread. Interestingly, the Arabic name literally means house of lamb or house of meat. How fitting it is that the one who said he was the bread of life was born in the house of bread. We invite to the Lord's table all who have been baptized and are under authority of Christ and his body, the church, when we come to the table, we are acknowledging that we are sinners without hope except for the sovereign mercy of God, and that we're trusting in lo- alone in Christ for our salvation. So come, welcome to the table of Christ that he has prepared for us. This is Christ's body, broken for us. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website 
ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.